One of the ways of implementing an agenda is to brainwash a nation, is to control the thought of the nation. And so this is a very interesting study, and it actually begins with marketing. And you have uh, a uh, individual that uh, helped change marketing named Edward Bernays. So in the 1800s, marketing was Wells Fargo Wagon and Sears Catalog, and they would list every possible detail about a sewing machine. But then in the early 1900s, you had magazine ads, and they would sell things by making it look like everybody's using it and everybody's happy. And this uh, is the classic is Crisco. Nobody knew what was in Crisco. They invented the term vegetable base, but nobody knew what it was. But they had these slick ads of happy families eating it, and it gave the impression that everybody's using it. It was so successful, it put out of business the lard industry where they take fat and render lard out of it for soaps and so forth. Do you know what's in Crisco? Cottonseed oil. So in the South, they'd harvest cotton. They had mountains of these black seeds. They would mash together into this mucky black oil that they would use in machinery and factories. Nobody ate that stuff. Somebody had the idea of bleaching it, putting it in nice cans with an advertising campaign that made it look like everybody's using it, and we have all eaten it. And so this idea... Um, is called Keeping Up with the Joneses, which was a New York uh, cartoon, a newspaper cartoon. But again, people buying things only because they see other people having it. And the individual that was the brain behind this was Edward Bernays, the father of propaganda. And the classic is uh, women's shoes. And so he, uh, he's the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he actually wrote a book titled Propaganda, and he later changed the word propaganda to public relations. But the whole idea is that you want to uh, influence the mind of the, of the public to be able to buy something and women's shoes. So he says women go into a department store and think that they're choosing the shoes. And he says, no, it's already been chosen for them by the marketing executive. And he, he writes this. Uh, it says that um, uh, the uh, women's shoes, uh, they would have them, the manufacturer would have a, a popular actress wear the shoes. And then they would snap the pictures and put it in the magazines and the fashion spreads. And so the women would see the magazines, they'd see the shoes, they'd go into the store and they would say, I want to buy that pair of shoes. And it says, the man who injected this idea into the shoe industry was ruling women in one department of their social lives. So the women didn't know it, but they were buying the shoes that this marketing executive had picked out for them and put on the actress and then put into the ad campaign. And he says that uh, today, a, a minority has discovered a powerful help in influencing the majority to mold the minds of the masses. They find in propaganda a tool it's increasingly powerful, regimenting the public mind. So we're taking how do you influence the public to buy a product to now you're influencing the public to adopt a political agenda. And uh, Edward Bernays uh, says the engineering of consent is the very essence of the democratic process, the freedom to persuade and suggest. And he's written books on this. And uh, he says, in almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct, in our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons. 
it is they who pulled the wires which control the public mind. And then you have someone named Norm Chomsky, and he helps write a book called Manufacturing Consent. So we think, oh, it's, it's democracy, it's the consent of the governed. And so it's like, wait a second, we're manufacturing, the, we're making it look like everybody is going along with a certain agenda. Just like with marketing of Crisco or shoes, they make it look like everybody's wearing this or eating this. And so uh, Oswald Spengler wrote in The Decline of the West in 1923, he says, democracy has become a weapon of a moneyed interests, of the moneyed interests. It uses the media to create the illusion that there is consent from the governed. The press today is an army of carefully organized weapons. The journalists, its officers, the readers, its soldiers. The reader neither knows nor is supposed to know the purposes for which he is used and the role he is to play. Democracy is often a government of the wealthy elites. So you get to vote, but you vote for people. The only thing you know about the people is what the media tells you. I mean, unless it's somebody that's gone door to door. And, um, and so this idea of using the media and the power of it uh, is the sensationalism. It was really came to the forefront during the Spanish-American War. And you had William Randolph Hearst with his New York Journal, Joseph Pulitzer with his New York World. And they stirred up the public to want to get involved in the Spanish-American War. It's called yellow press journalism. Now, there was terrible injustices taking place in Cuba from the Spanish government. And so William Randolph Hearst sends his illustrator, Frederick Remington, down to Cuba. And he sees the terrible uh, treatment and the starvation. And Hearst cables Remington in 1897, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. All right, so back then, a lot of the newspapers didn't have the ability to actually publish a photograph, but they would uh, publish drawings. And so Remington would do these drawings. Uh, so now we have people buying a product because of making it look like everybody is using it. But then there came to the forefront another way of motivating people, fear. And the classic example is Orson Welles and the radio drama, War of the Worlds in 1938. We interrupt this program to announce that New Jersey is being invaded by Martians. Instantly, fear and panic swept the country. People run outside, look in the sky for spaceships. It was a phenomenon that was studied how you could electrically instantly motivate the whole country into fear and, and to action. And then this is studied some more with psychological dramas and movies. And one is Gaslight, 1944. Ingrid Bergman is the actress who, who is the um, playing in this movie, the niece of a famous uh, theater actress in England and who was given jewels and then dies and the, all of her stuff, as well as the jewels are, are hidden in the attic and Ingrid Bergman uh, inherits the house and she locks the attic and it's too emotional to go up there. And there's a guy that knows that she has the jewels and uh, begins to befriend Ingrid Bergman and court her and marry her for the purpose of saying, well, you know, you, you go to bed and, and I'm gonna go for a walk and smoke my pipe. And he would go out go down the street, climb up the fire escape, and like in London, all the houses together, like Mary Poppins, and he would claw on the roof and go through the window, and then he, in the attic, he would turn on the lamp 
And when he would turn the lamp on in the attic to root around looking for the jewels, the lamp in Ingrid Bergman's bedroom would get dimmer. And she would tell him, you know, every night when you go for a walk, the light in my bedroom gets dimmer. And he goes, oh, your eyes are playing tricks on you. You're seeing things. He goes, I, I think the stress is getting to you. I think you could be losing it. I think we need to take you to a psychiatrist. I think we need to commit you to an insane asylum. I mean, and they're about ready to sign her away when the hero of the movie is across the street and sees the light go on in the attic and get dimmer in the bedroom and they break the story. But this idea of manipulating people's perception, uh, it went into our vernacular. So now it actually is a term, gaslighting, that you're creating the impression that's not really there, but people think it is and they'll, they'll submit. And uh, now we come up to World War II and the Army and Air Force have a motion picture service. And we're like, why would they want to have, make movies? Well, they realize the ability to sway people. Uh, I even talked years ago to individuals who uh, went to a movie of a guy going into the war and being a hero and coming out and there being sign-up tables in the lobby of the movie theater uh, to enlist. And then this particular person went ahead and enlisted. Uh, now, this was being used, though, for, for an, an ostensible patriotic purpose, right? We, we need people to fight Hitler and the, and the imperial Japanese. Well, the idea of manipulating was really, really studied by Joseph Goebbels. He was the Nazi minister of propaganda. And with the fear of the war, he would orchestrate these 100,000-person-attended Coliseum events with all the pageantry, and then they would begin to give the Hitler salute in the front. And it would work its way back, and everybody would see everybody else giving the Hitler salute, and they would feel pressure to give it, and people would see you giving it, and they'd feel pressure to give it. And that's how you manipulated a whole country to throw their lot in with this Nazi government. You made it look like everybody is a part of it. And this fear-mongering uh, Joseph Goebbels said, it is the absolute right of the state to supervise the formation of public opinion. Think of the press as a great keyboard on which the government can play. And uh, so how could uh, all these Germans become accomplices in the Holocaust? So instead of an actress wearing shoes to sell shoes, uh, they figured out that you need an, an authority figure. And this helps. So you need an authority figure claiming that it's science along with this to motivate the people to make it look like everybody's doing it and going along with it. So, so you're whittling it down to this authority figure. So a study was done at Yale, 1963, the Stanley Milgram shock experiment. And uh, Milgram had placed ads in a local newspaper for volunteers to be teachers and learners in this educational experiment. And the learners were in on it and they knew what was going on, but the, the teachers did not. And so the teachers were put in a separate room within earshot of another room where the learner was in. And the teacher was instructed to ask the learner questions over a microphone. And if the learner answered incorrectly, the teacher was told to flip a switch and give the learner a shock. And so they the learner was all wrapped up with these wires and now they weren't really being shocked, but the teacher didn't know that. And so the uh, shocks increased in intensity. And there are videos that are on YouTube where it has this, that the teacher would ask the question, the person would get it wrong and it would flip the switch and they would say, ow. 
And then the next question they get wrong, they go, ow. Next question is, ah, until they're screaming in agony and pain. And the, the teacher would look at this person in the lab coat and says, are you, is this okay? Is this person getting hurt? And they scream louder. And they, shouldn't you check on that person? I mean, and then finally the, the person gets quiet. And he goes, Did, is the person might be dead? Why don't you go in the other room and check? And as long as the teacher, uh, the person in the lab coat, the authority figure said, the experiment must go on for science. This is science. The person would deny their own natural human compassion and continue giving the shocks. They actually found out that 65% of random people would give shocks equivalent to killing somebody. And they would do it against their own conscience if there was an authority figure saying, this is science. We have to continue this for science. And so it was a way to manipulate the people. Now, the idea of manipulating the public has a long history. The most common form of government in world history is kings, Nimrods, Pharaohs, Caesars, Kaisers. And if you have an agenda, you got to get in to see the king. So in China, the emperor had 2,000 concubines and Mandarin eunuchs who kept the harems. And if you wanted to meet with the emperor to suggest an agenda, you would bribe the mandarins who would make the arrangements and you'd meet him. Pitch your idea. Well, in Athens, the city didn't have a king. It was just the people, 6,000 citizens, and the people had to choose and make the decisions. Well, if you have an agenda, how do you pitch it to the whole city? And that's when the Greeks invented theater. They would get the whole city together in an amphitheater. And they would put on plays, comedies, tragedies, satires, where they'd ridicule and buffoon certain points of view and honor and extol other points of view. And the person in the theater would see the one politician getting ribbed and making, making fun of by name, uh, very similar to Saturday Night Live, right? You read the comedies of Aristophanes and they're naming politicians and making fun of them and joking about them. And, and you can just feel them cringing and and after the theaters, everybody said, I don't want to be like that guy that was made fun of. But then they would have the tragedies, these plays, and they would honor and extol other points of view and make them look noble. And people would leave the theater saying, I want to be like that person, right? And from that time till now, theater is always political in a country where it's the people who are in charge. Think of your favorite sitcom movie show. There's a character you like, they're cute, they're funny, they're the hero, and you identify with them. And as this series goes on, this character begins to make morally compromising decisions. They, a little cheating, a little lust, a little revenge. Maybe there's a, you know, a, one of those animated films where there's a character that they've had several of these films come out and he's a good character. And then they finally have a, another uh, episode of this movie where they have a, a, a same-sex kiss. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, this character that I really liked these last several movies and now we're finding out that, right, or whatever. And so, uh, so what happens is, is you get emotionally invested and like a character in the play, in the movie, in the theater, and then the people putting on the play or the people paying for this to be aired, they begin to write the scripts to make this character begin to make these morally compromising decisions. And you find yourself apologizing for the character. You find yourself saying, well, maybe it's not so bad. And, and you find yourself defending them. 
saying, well, I know James Bond is with a woman he's not married to, but he's about to save the world. So can, can we get on with the story? And it minimizes something that used to be very important in your life, marital fidelity. And, um, and so then they usually portray people that hold old traditional values as bumpkins and simpletons and idiots. And you turn off that TV show and you say, yeah, that person, they were really old fashioned and stodgy. And that was really, you know, pretty embarrassing the way they acted. And this other person, he was cool. And in fact, he was so cool. I want to buy his tennis shoes and, and wear, wear their perfume, right? So in a country where it's the people that are the king, you have to influence a large amount of people. And you do that by emotional, uh, making it look like everybody's being a part of it. And so if you think of it as a, a domino effect, the country is controlled by laws. Laws are controlled by politicians. Politicians are controlled by voters. Voters are controlled by public opinion. And public opinion is controlled by media in the short run, education in the long run, the church, and the internet. And the internet's separate because all the rest of them use the internet. So if you want to control the country, you control the media, the education, the church pulpits, and the internet. And somebody that understood this is Antonio Gramsci. He's the one that is credited with the phrase, the long march through the institutions. So he uh, is a, an Italian socialist that gets on the wrong side of other socialists, and he gets put in jail where he dies. And um, he's in prison, and he writes about, it's going to be impossible to conquer Western civilization and make it socialist um, from the outside, you need to rot it from the inside. And you have to infiltrate all of the different areas. It's sort of like the seven mountains in reverse, right? So those today that have observed the different areas of influence uh, in media, entertainment, business, education, family, government, right? And there's uh, the arts and the media and then uh, the religion. So we got these, these different seven categories and so forth. The idea of infiltrating things, uh, Albert Herlong was a congressman in Florida. And in, in 1963, he reads into the congressional record, different communist goals to take over the country. And one of them was get control of the schools, use them as transmission belts for socialism and communist propaganda get control of teachers associations, put the party line in textbook, use student rights to foment public protests. And so Antonio Gramsci, in his prison notebooks, 1937, he writes, the civilized world has been thoroughly saturated with Christianity for 2000 years. Now, Christianity emphasizes the individual. So you, you individually have a relationship with God. You have a, an individual worth because you're made in the image of God. And of course, this is Judeo-Christian. Um, goes back to the book of Genesis, right? That you're made in the image of God. And, and so you're worth something, whether or not you can contribute. You're worth something, whether you're part of a group or not part of a group. You individually are made in the image of God. And this God is not a respecter of persons. Rich or poor, everyone's to be treated the same, male, female, made in the image of the creator. So Judeo-Christian civilization, in a sense, can be summed up in one word, individual. The emphasis is on the individual. Socialism can be summed up in one word, group. And so we have individual versus group. And so socialism, Antonio Gramsci says, you got to get rid of Judeo-Christian views if you're going to push the group socialist system. So Antonio Gramsci says, the civilized world has been thoroughly saturated with Christianity for 2,000 years. 
any country grounded in Judeo-Christian values cannot be overthrown until those roots are cut. Socialism is precisely the religion which must overwhelm Christianity. Uh, it says that um, socialism will triumph by first capturing the culture via infiltration of schools, universities, churches, and media. So he lists these. Doesn't list all seven of them, but he lists schools, universities, churches, and the media transforming the consciousness of society. So way back in 1937, we have this person putting down in ink that you have to infiltrate the schools, universities, churches, and media. Now, this is a concept called deconstruction. It's where you separate a people, you go into the schools and you tell the students, you wanna separate the students from the past, get them into a neutral position where they do not remember where the country came from, and then you can brainwash them more easily into the future you have planned for them. It's a drive neutral reverse system. It's actually a sales technique, right? And so uh, if I was a toothpaste salesman, the first thing I do is tell you negative things about the toothpaste you're currently using. You're still brushing with that old stuff. Haven't you read, it'll eat the enamel off your teeth? Ooh, you're repulsed by it. Now I have you in a neutral position. You're open-minded. What are all the toothpastes out there? Then I give you my pitch for this brand new tartar control breath freshener toothpaste, right? So it's drive neutral reverse. And it, it's like a gene replacement therapy for a culture. So they go into the classrooms and they tell the kids negative things about the founding fathers. They took land from Indians. They sold people into slavery. They were chauvinists. Forget the fact they gave you a country where you're in charge of your life. And then the students are repulsed by the founders. They're in this neutral position. They're open-minded. Then you give them your pitch for socialism or LGBTQ or Sharia Islam, right? And so Europe actually went through this. It went from a Judeo-Christian Europe with a thousand years of Catholic cathedrals, Protestant Reformation, and Jewish neighborhoods to a secular Europe during the French Revolution. Free sex, anything goes. It's sort of capsulized in John Lennon's Imagine There's No Heaven. And now it's turning into a socialist and a Sharia Europe with Mohammed being the number one name for newborns. And yeah, the government pays for everyone's education, but it also decides what career path they're going to go into. And during this French Revolution, they tore down statues, like the statue of good King Henry IV, who in the 1500s tried to patch up Protestants and Catholics. And during the French Revolution, they dug up the bones of St. Genevieve and trashed them. St. Genevieve in 451 AD, when Attila the Hun, with an army of a half a million men, is wiping out city after city in Europe, Genevieve gets all of Paris to fast and pray, and Attila skips sacking Paris. So she's considered the patron saint of Paris. Well, during the French Revolution, they dig up her bones and trash, and why would you want to destroy the history? Well, it's deconstruction. So during the French Revolution, uh, they tore down lots of things because they wanted to do their new republic, but it's not just Western civilization. China had this in the third century BC. It was called the Warring States Period. Half dozen Chinese kingdoms fighting in one winds led by Qin Shi Huangdi. And Qin Shi Huangdi was being criticized for doing things differently than they had been done for centuries before. And he got tired of being compared to the past. So he decided to destroy all records of how things were done in the past. And he had tens of thousands of bamboo annal books burned. And uh, now if it hadn't been for the classics of Chinese history being buried in the tomb of a previous emperor, they would never have survived. Although there's lots of stuff that didn't survive and we don't even know what that was. But the idea of destroying history 
because you want to do something new. Uh, and so Quin Chi Wangdi uh, in, uh, had a chancellor named Li Si, and he writes in 213 BC, I, your servant, propose that all historians' records other than those of Quinn's be burned. If anyone under heaven has copies of the classics of history, they shall deliver them to the governor for burning. Anyone who dares discuss the classics of history shall be publicly executed. Anyone who uses history to criticize the present shall have his family executed. Anyone who has failed to burn the books after 30 days of this announcement shall be sent to build the Great Wall. Now, this idea of destroying history because you want to do something new was used by Mao Zedong during the Cultural Revolution. It wasn't just a revolution. It was a cultural revolution. He destroyed thousands of years of Chinese culture because he wanted to do something new, the People's Republic of China. And so uh, they would do public shaming. Anybody that knew about the past uh, and anybody that had any Western influence was brought into public and they had to confess their whiteness. They had to confess that they were part of the evil Western system or whatever, and they would cut them and they would bleed. And the more blood these radical students had on their uniforms, the more they were praised. And then they, they burnt uh, the oldest Buddhist temple in China and they destroyed the old great gates of Beijing, just destroying all this history. Why? Because they wanted to do something new, the People's Republic of China. And even Xi Jinping, a few years ago, uh, Paris was going to have an exhibition on Genghis Khan. And he calls up Paris and says, you're not. And you think, what's wrong with that? Well, Genghis Khan was Mongolian. And he ruled China for a century. It's called the Wan Dynasty. And for the pure Chinese, this is an embarrassment that a Mongolian ruled them. And so they decided to destroy uh, lots of monuments in China that border Mongolia that, that acknowledge Genghis Khan. And here they want to erase. So it's not just in the West tearing down statues. It's anywhere where you're implementing communism, you want to tear down. And uh, Pol Pot did the same thing in Cambodia. He killed anybody that wore glasses. He said, if you wore glasses, you could read. If you read, you knew the history. He wanted to get rid of the history. He made 1975 the new year zero. Said anything prior to that was irrelevant. Right. So here you want to get rid of all the past history because you want to do something new. And Sharia Islam does this. Uh, when Khalif Umar and Amir Ibn Alas conquer Egypt, uh, the story is that they went into the library of Alexandria and saw all these books and parchments that were ancient. And the decision was made that every book that does not agree with the Quran should be destroyed. And every book that does agree with the Quran is redundant because we have the Quran. So destroy them all. It took six months to burn them all. And um, so this concept uh, goes back to a, a hadith that says, do not leave an image without obliterating it or a high grave without leveling it. And even when the ISIS took over Mosul, Iraq, and they had a museum to Assyria, which 700 BC was the biggest empire on the planet, the ISIS Muslims destroyed the ancient statues of Assyria. Now, today in America, this is called the 1619 Project or Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. It's intentionally designed to portray America's past negatively so the students emotionally detach from not only the founders, but from everything the founders created, a free government where you have rights as an individual and it's ruled by the consent of the governed. 
you, they want to scrap all that because they want to go into a socialist system where the government has a deep state that decides everything for everybody. Carl Sandburg, a poet, said, when a nation goes down, one condition may always be found. They forgot where they came from. They forgot the history. George Orwell, in his book, 1984, has a character named Winston. And his job was working for the Ministry of Truth, which is one of those double speaks. It's actually does, it's the government that lies. It's sort of like a lot of these bills that get put into Congress that say one thing, but they do the other. Like an affordable healthcare act that's really not affordable, right? So you want to name something that's the opposite of what it really does, right? And so that's the George Orwell doublespeak. So George Orwell, this, this character named Winston, and his job at the Ministry of Truth is to edit history. And the pneumatic tube, like when you go to a bank and you put your deposit in that little uh, thing and it sucks it into the bank, that was a new invention in 1948. And so Winston would be at his desk and down the pneumatic tube would come a capsule, which would have some history that he had to edit. And he would take a little pen knife and cut out the old history and then he'd put in the new and then he would take the old history, put it in another pneumatic tube and send it down the memory hole, down into the basement to the incinerator where it was burned. And he writes that um, every record had been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten, every picture had been repainted. Every statue and street building had been renamed. Every date had been altered. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. He says, I know, of course, that the past is falsified, but it would never be possible for me to prove it. Even when I did the falsification myself, after the thing is done, no evidence remains. The only evidence is inside my own mind. And I don't know it, that any other human being shares my memories. And he says, everything faded in, into mist. The past was erased. The erasure was forgotten. The lie became truth. So here in this book, 1984, talks about the government re-editing history, rewriting history, right? This is like a 1619 project or Howard Zinn's a people's history of the United States. George Orwell says, those who control the past control the future, and those who control the present control the past. So the past is where you get the trajectory, your identity, where you came from. It helps you to know where you're going, your purpose in life. But if they can change that, it changes these kids' directory, right? Their purpose. The Second Great Awakening in the early 1800s, you had these young people that were become strong Christians, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they go around the world and start missionary movements in Burma, in Hawaii, in the Caribbean, they start hospitals and medical clinics and schools and orphanages. All that woke energy was used to spreading these good things. But if you control the textbooks, you can change the past and you can get these kids now to smash windows and set things on fire and say, I'm justified in doing this because some ancestor was treated bad. So we see this idea of not just selling Crisco and not just selling women's shoes and not just selling ideologies during the Spanish American war or Joseph Goebbels uh, idea of uh, having a whole nation caught up with fear and making it look like everybody is, is embracing a certain viewpoint. Um, we now get a little closer. There's a, a very important understanding and it was verbalized by Carl von Clausewitz. He's a 19th century military theorist. 
And he gave the classic definition of the purpose of war. The purpose of war is to force your opponent to submit to your will. So you're killing your opponent's bodies. You're killing them with guns. Why? Because their mind is loyal to the other side. What if you could just mess with their mind? What if you could get them to be disloyal? What if you could get them into fear? What if you could get them to be depressed and discouraged and give up? And so this concept was verbalized in Sun Tzu's Art of War, 5th century BC. And he said, supreme excellence of a commander consists in breaking the enemy's resistance without fighting. Right? So if you're, you're a good commander, you, you win the battle. But if you're a really good commander, you basically psych out your enemy. And you get them to think you're more powerful than you are. And you're everywhere where you're not. And you get them to just cave and surrender. And so this psychological warfare uh, during World War II, we would drop pamphlets down on German villages. And it would be written in German. And it would say things like, your side has already lost. Your, your commander just hasn't told you yet. And it would mess with their minds. And they, they did that to us with Tokyo Rose. This uh, Japanese woman with a very you know, seductive voice would be on the radio and she would say, you Americans are doing terrible things. And, and it would mess with our soldiers' minds. And uh, this idea of messing with minds it actually is, is in the Bible. So here you had Israel and they're coming into the promised land and they have several million people and they have the potential to be able to conquer the land. But there were 10 of the 12 spies that gave a bad, evil report. And they said, oh, um, the land has giants and we can't do this. And it was, they were psychologically defeated. They had mil several million people. They, they could, and they later did, conquer. But here, their mind was messed with. And because of that fear, uh, they ended up having to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And now we look at another on the other side is Gideon. So there's 100,000 Midianites invading Israel. And he gets 300 of his men against 100,000. But they surround the camp of the enemy. And they break their pitchers. They shine their torches. They blow their trumpets. And what happens is it, the enemy thinks they are surrounded by an enormous enemy, even though they weren't. But in the dark, they end up panicking, they bump into each other, and then the panic and fear spreads, and, and they get thrown into chaos, and they end up getting defeated. It was a psychological warfare that Gideon did. And now it is called fifth-generation warfare, where you get your enemy to surrender without them even being aware that they're in a war. I mean, why even bother letting them know there's a war and then getting them depressed? If, you, if the goal of war is to get your enemy to submit to your will, what if you can get them to submit without them even being aware that they're in a war? You just get them into fear and they give up their freedoms. You, you skip a step. It's, it's a lot easier. Now, this was uh, different ingredients that were involved in this of molding the public opinion in America not just with William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer and their New York newspapers. And, uh, but we begin to see this influence of uh, an army uh, department of motion pictures uh, influencing the public. But during the Cold War, Alan Dulles was the head of the CIA. And our country, by and large, was tired of war. 
because of World War II. And uh, Alan Dulles, CIA, said, we need to uh, get America uh, awakened to the threat of communism. And so he had uh, what Carl Bernstein, who was the Watergate reporter that broke the um, Washington Post reporter that broke the Watergate story. Carl Bernstein did an interview in Rolling Stone magazine, 1977. And the title of the article is The CIA in the Media. And he talked about how the CIA would feed stories to the media and that they had over 400 press members who were considered assets of the CIA or influencers. And they would tell them, we want you to write a story of, on this angle, making this person the, the good guy and this guy the bad guy. And they would introduce this into the public. And back then it, it ostensibly had a patriotic purpose of awakening the country to the dangers of this creeping communism. And, uh, but he, he, he writes about this and acknowledges that there is this program. Now, uh, they said that they stopped it. Uh, but um, if you believe that, uh, fine. It's sort of like the, the NSA collecting data that they said, well, we're not gonna collect it on American citizens. And then a little bit later, you find out they're collecting it on everybody, right? So they'll say one thing, Lord Acton was a British uh, statesman. And he said, official truth is not actual truth. But uh, so now we see this influencing of the public and it's gone online with Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all these different groups. And if they can control the message and they'll let a certain uh, viewpoint get access to the public and other viewpoints censored from the public, then they can begin to mold the public mind to push a particular agenda. And this was studied again uh, during the Korean War. And so we talked about Joseph Goebbels, World War II, uh, but the Korean War, there were young men that were patriotic and they get captured and they get rescued and they hate America. I'm like, what happened to these guys in, in, in the prison camps? It, they found out it was something called brainwashing, which was the term that was coined during this period of time. And it comes from the Buddhist concept of cleansing the brain, cleansing the mind. It's an emotional reset. And so they would take the prisoner and put them in isolation and deprivation for long periods of time until they would get to the breaking point of just craving wanting to get back to normal, craving just wanting to have relationships with people. And when they got to this point, they would bring them into a room with other guys who had already caved. And before they could be accepted in the group and get the emotional reinforcement that they so much craved, they had to confess their whiteness. They had to confess that they were part of the Western evil system that was capitalist and was doing terrible things around the world. And once they finally rejected America, then they got that emotional reinforcement. And so this is now a tactic used nationally, sort of like the gaslighting. But it's this idea that you want to have a situation where everybody is isolated and locked down and separated from interactions with other people, so much so they just crave, 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 just wanting to get back to normal. And then they say, well, before you can get back to normal, you have to do this, you have to get this shot, you got to get this booster, you got to give away this freedom and that freedom or the other. And it's manipulating the human desire to belong to fit in. So you're not just manipulating buying a product of Crisco or buying ladies' shoes or um, you know, adopting a, it, it's this, it's realizing 
that human beings are social creatures and we want to be accepted and we do not want to be rejected. It's a primal human emotion. For most of the world, this is called honor shame culture, where there's not a real absolute right and absolute wrong. What brings you and your family honor is good. And what shames and ostracizes and kicks you and your family out of the community, the UMA, is bad. And so this is a manipulating of this human desire to fit in. Now, just a little trivia. Uh, these guys that were brainwashed during the Korean War, they found out that the ones that were able to resist this were the ones that had a sense of humor. They were just sort of laughing off, like, okay, so what if you all don't like, you know? And um, it's like an emotional shock therapy um, where you overload their emotions. Uh, and so then they start again, somewhere like Pavlov's dog or, or one of these, imagine having a dog that doesn't like you and you lock it in a room for a week, no light, no food, no water, goes through deprivation, isolation, it barks itself out. And finally, it's just, just laying there and you open the door and you give it some food and water and you start petting it. That dog will now have an emotional reset and look to you as its benefactor, right? And um, so uh, Saul Linsky talked about ridicule is man's most powerful weapon. The threat of being kicked out of a group is extremely powerful. And uh, there's even verses in the Bible where it says the chief rulers, you know, uh, uh, it says that uh, because of the Pharisees, they did not confess unless they should be put out of the synagogue. Nobody wants to be put out of anything. Another verse, it says that um, the, speak these words to the parents and the parents fe feared the Jewish leaders because they said whoever confessed Christ would be put out of the synagogue. Nobody wants to be put out. And so let's, in nature, you got water molecules and they're individual water molecules, but you put them together with other water molecules and they act together in a group and have waves and clouds and, and an individual fish in a bowl, but you put it together with other fish, it operates in a group. A bird in a cage, but you put it together with other birds, it operates in a group. Well, you're an individual, but you put an individual with other people and we operate as a group. We're constantly giving and receiving feedback of whether we're being accepted or rejected. We want to be accepted. We do not want to be rejected. And so we're constantly getting this feedback. And um, this is an honor-shame culture, as I mentioned. Kids in school, they want to fit in. Nobody wants to be kicked out of the group. It's very powerful. Matter of fact, in the 1970s, they did another experiment called the Solomon Ash Conformity Experiment. They did it on college campuses. They'd pull eight students into a room. Seven had been paid ahead of time to be actors. One was a naive participant. And the teacher would put two cards on the front desk. One card simply had one line on it and the other three lines, one longer, one shorter, one the same. And beginning with the paid actors, one by one, they would go around the room and say that the shorter line was equal to the first line. By the time it got around to the eighth naive participant, 30% of them would deny their own eyes to fit in with the group. I mean, they're looking at the lines. They can see that it's not the same, but they, they'll deny their, they'll doubt their perception and they'll cave and go in with the group. And uh, now I found if, if only one objected, then it went from 30% down to 5%. So it's, it's worth it for you to stand up to encourage others to. So this is given a term, it's called the spiral of silence, that people will self-center their views if they think they're in the minority. They did another with a wine tasting experiment. Chuck Colson talked about this, where everybody's in on it except one couple, and they pour vinegar in the wine. And this couple writes on their little card, this tastes terrible. One by one, the other couples would stand up and say, this had great flavor, this was robust, this had character. 
the couple that had written it tastes terrible scratched out what they wrote and they said it tastes good and they stand up well yeah it, it tastes good and when somebody said well all they did was pour vinegar in the couple that changed their views criticized the person and it was something they call false enforcement once somebody buys into the lie they will help enforce that everyone else buys into the lie. They'll want to make sure that everybody else submits and everybody will pull out their cameras and say, well, gee, you don't have a mask on. And they don't know any of the science behind it, but they'll help enforce it. Now, at the beginning of America, the majority of the people were Christian. And so non-Christians would adopt Christian behavior to fit in with the Christian group. But now they have co-opted the influencers, the public opinion molders, and they're using their pressure to push people in the other direction. And um, this is powerful. Now let's look at the Bible. Peter is with Jesus three years, looks Jesus in the eye, says, I'll never betray you. A couple hours later, Peter is with a group around a fire. And a girl gets in his face and says, you are with Jesus. And you can just picture Peter looking up at everybody in the group and everybody's staring at him. And he's about to be kicked out. And he says, I never met the guy. That, that's it. You were with Jesus three years. You look him in the eye, tell me, and you just came that fast. The power of a group, of being kicked out of a group, is, is tremendous. Now, for Peter's sake, after the resurrection, filled with the Holy Spirit, he stands up to the Sanhedrin. They said, we gave you orders not to teach in his name. And Peter replies, we must obey God rather than men. Peter has a change. He no longer cares what men, what the group say. He only cares what God says, it's only when you have a relationship with God can you stand up and not be influenced by the group. You give up the fear of man, and you only have the fear of God. But if you don't have a relationship with God, your worth, your identity, your everything is whether or not you're praised and honored and accepted in a group and followed and friended and liked, and you do not want to be canceled and un unfriended and blocked and deplatformed and boycotted. Your worth as a person is dependent on whether you're accepted or rejected. But if you have an identity and a relationship with God, you don't care what men say. All you care about is the last day when the Lord says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You only care about what, what, what Jesus thinks about you. Uh, the early believers, when they were under persecution, they prayed, Lord, look on their threats, grant your servants boldness that we may speak your word. And um, uh, another uh, it says uh, to Jeremiah, the Lord said, be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver you. So don't care about what people say. Don't care if they post bad things about you online. You do what I want you to do. Sam Kudran was the uh, Giants pitcher. And in, in 2020, he was the only player not to kneel in protest to the American flag. And when, I, when they asked him afterwards why, he says, I'm a Christian, so I just believe that I can't kneel before anything besides God. Wow. Early believers would go to their death before they would kneel before a statue of Caesar. Another player was um, uh, with the uh, Orlando, um, Jonathan Isaac, Orlando Magic forward, and he was the only one not to kneel. And afterwards, they asked him, and he says, all lives are supported through the gospel. Everyone is made in the image of God, and we all share in his glory. Sometime in your life, you are going to be called to take a stand and you're either going to cave or stand up for the Lord. And I believe that the good Lord is pushing the world in this direction, right? So obviously I'm a Christian, but the Bible is that the church is the body of Christ. 
and there's one bride, right? And uh, if you think of a romance novel, there, there's always this point, every Hallmark movie, there's always this point where uh, the guy has to forsake all others, right? For the girl and the girl has to forsake all others for the, right? And there's this abandoning of what everybody else cares and you only care about this, what this one person cares about. And it only makes sense if we're the bride of Christ that he's letting the world get pushed to the place where you will be in a position where you're going to have to choose. Do I going to choose the world or am I going to forsake the world and I only care about what Jesus thinks about me? Jesus says, you receive honor from one another and seek not the honor that comes from God only. Philippians says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who made himself a no reputation. He didn't care what people thought about him, and you can't care either. Approval of man is an ever-moving goalpost. It's a religion of works of which you can never do enough. And it can be continually manipulated by those who hold public opinion. So the, the people that were woke a few years ago, uh, if they don't continue to get woke, they get canceled. Uh, you know, the author of, of Harry Potter series, right? She was sort of a, a, their hero for a while. But then when she stood up for one of her friends that believed there actually was a male and a female, she got canceled. She got, right? So they'll, it's an ever-moving goalpost. And uh, so again, it's this choice. Do we care about the approval of man or the approval of God? Well, I'm going to pause with that, but it's a concept that we need to be aware of, that it is, uh, there is, as we speak, a very well-oiled machine that has gone from marketing of products to marketing ideologies that wants to control your thoughts, that wants to get inside of your brain. And one of the powerful ways of controlling your thoughts is the group acceptance or rejection. And it is being used on us every day when you watch the media. Um, and so I just encourage you to uh, have a relationship with the Lord and, and stand up and only care about what he thinks. And I think that that's his goal as we get close to whatever timeline the Lord has for the end. But I think that there is this sorting out of the sheep and the goats, and there is this choosing of who, uh, who really does love the Lord. Thank you so much for taking this time to listen with me.